encouragement that he's going to bring. Well, this evening we want to, uh, you know, I have to tell you, we're going to have to stay in heaven just a little while longer. Is that okay? Is it all right to stay in heaven just a little bit longer than we expected? Okay. You know, the more we delve into the scriptures and, and really, we really want to get an understanding of where we're going beyond this chapter, we really need to know this chapter. I think I mentioned that last week. But I don't want to take any pace that's greater than the pace that God wants us to take. I think that this is important for us as foundational to understanding chapter 6 through 22 that we find ourselves strongly in chapter 5. So we're going to begin by reading Revelation chapter 5 verses 1 through 4 and then we'll get right into our study. John is recounting what he has been able to see because the Lord has carried him in the Spirit into heaven. He has already seen the throne of God. He has seen the glory of God. He has seen the rainbow around the throne of God completed all the way around the throne. That emerald rainbow that uh, speaks of His everlastingness. It, it speaks of His completed covenant. And then He saw the thrones of the 24 elders, and the 24 elders representing all redeemed of all time. And then in verse 1 of chapter 5 it says, And I saw in the right hand of Him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven, it says. No one in heaven or on, on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. Now I have a question for you. Actually a series of questions. But the first question is, who owns this piece of property. Now we can refer to the psalm that says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And to the greater extent, God is the one who has the control of all things. But the question still exists who owns this piece of property? in light of what Jesus came to this earth to die for. And in the whole scheme of things, why is this property more valuable than all of the universe and everything contained in it? Why is it more valuable? And why is there such confusion as to its ownership? We're going to talk about that tonight so we can get a good grip of this first question. It has to do with 
real estate transactions. Any realtors here? Any people that deal with real estate at any, at any given time? I think we all have at some point had to deal with that. But a lot of real estate transactions are made each and every day. And recorded history includes a number of property transactions that either changed the course of history or established cultural icons. Now, most of you remember from history class the purchase of the island of Manhattan by a man named Peter Minuit, the leader of the Dutch colonies of New Netherlands. Purchase from the natives for items that were valued at $24. The whole island of Manhattan. Now you can't get a Starbucks for 24 bucks there. You probably also remember the Louisiana Purchase of 1803 when Thomas Jefferson purchased 800,000 square miles of land west of the Mississippi uh, from Napoleon Bonaparte of France for $50 million. Some professional athletes live in homes valued at $15 million today, I think. But without a doubt... There is no property transaction as significant and monumental as that which takes place here in chapter 5 of the book of Revelation. For it was the entire earth that was at stake. And I should put it in the present tense, it is the entire earth that's at stake. We saw in our introduction to chapter 5 last time that John observed a scroll in God's right hand. The hand that the scriptures describe as signifying authority, strength, and power. We're told in the text that the scroll is written inside and out, firmly sealed with seven seals, indicating seven sections with a prearranged order. It's as if you took seven scrolls, and each scroll had something on it, then that's sealed, and then a second is like... Is, is like it, and then a third, and so on and so forth, until you have all seven, and then all seven are sealed, as you see in this particular illustration. But they come in a pre-arranged order, predetermined order. And the only person who could and would read the document was someone who had the authority to break the seals. Now, wills and title deeds in John's day were more than likely written on a scroll sealed with seven seals. And those who were reading John's apocalypse, in other words, John's revelation of Jesus Christ, would have thought of a real estate transaction. The idea or principle of this type of transaction actually went all the way back to the Old Testament days with something that was called the Redemption Clause. You find this described legally in Leviticus chapter 25, and then it is practically exemplified in the book of Ruth, as well as in Jeremiah 32. We'll see that in just a moment. Now, there are a few things that will help us in understanding Revelation chapter 5 in regards to redemption. In regards to redemption. Now, I've oftentimes defined redemption as buying something back. You're buying something back from someone. 
we've been redeemed. Because of sin, we were, in essence, sold into the slavery of sin and death and the enemy. But it was Jesus Christ who paid the price to buy us back, you see. So you get an understanding of redemption that way. But when you talk about redemption in this particular instance, property and or the redemption of property was meant to stay in the family. Now that is a very important point. Property was meant to stay in the family. And when the Lord brought the children of Israel into the promised land, He gave each family an inheritance, a portion of land. Do you remember which, which tribe did not get any land? The Levites. Because they were going to live in all the regions, because they were going to be the, the ones that were actually bringing God to the people and the people to God. But of all the other tribes, they all were given an inheritance and a portion of land. It was very important to God that each family retain their inheritance and their land. The land was never to leave the possession of the family. But the Lord knew that there would be instances where a family might become poor and need to sell their, their only possessions left, which was their land. And yet even in these circumstances, the sale of the land was not permanent. It could be bought back by a Redeemer. If the Redeemer was from the same family as the original owners. Take for instance, as I mentioned, Leviticus 25 verse 25. Let's look at that. If one of your brethren becomes poor and has sold some of his possession, and if his redeeming relative comes to redeem it, then he may redeem what his brother sold. The Scriptures call that close relative. In other words, that his redeeming relative. The Scriptures call him the Goel. Sometimes pronounced Goel or sometimes pronounced Ga'al in the Hebrew. But it means kinsman, redeemer. Kinsman because he is, is your kin. He's your family. Redeemer. Because he buys back the property that was lost. That is what Boaz, the great grandfather of King David, is called. The kinsman redeemer in the book of Ruth. We'll see that in just a moment. Now, every kinsman redeemer had to meet three requirements or qualifications. Every kinsman redeemer had to meet three requirements or qualifications. First, as already mentioned, he had to be related to the original owner. Secondly, he had to be able to fulfill the requirements to purchase a property. He had to have something to purchase it with. And thirdly, he had to be willing to buy, the, to buy back the property. I mean, you know, he could have the first two and then just decide, I really don't want to buy it. And it was up to him. But he had to have the willingness to buy it back for his family. Now, what was important, if you, if, if you were concerned with family, if you were concerned with a law that said, keep this in your family. But maybe sometimes people didn't like the stipulations given. So you see how this redemption takes place in the book of Ruth. Quick story. A poor, woman, a, a poor widow named Naomi 
has come back to Bethlehem from Moab, where her family had traveled to live. She and her husband Elimelech had two sons. And the two sons grew up in Moab and they married two Moabite women. One of them whose name is Ruth. But Elimelech dies. And this is why Naomi comes back to Bethlehem. Because they had sold the property. And so they came back to see, or she came back to see if someone, if someone would redeem her property. But on this trip back, she comes not alone. She comes with Ruth, her daughter-in-law, who also lost her husband. As a matter of fact, both of their sons died in Moab. One wife stayed in Moab and the other, Ruth, came with Naomi. So she comes back to see if someone would redeem her property. And, and besides the land, <laughs> there, there's this, this young Moabite woman named Ruth, Naomi's daughter-in-law, who was a part of this purchase agreement. If you're going to get the land, you've got to get Ruth too. And a relative... Boaz, he's eligible to buy the property. And besides, he really likes Ruth. He really, really, really likes Ruth. He loves her, as a matter of fact. But before the transaction is made, he has to deal with a relative that was closer. Because it's the closest relative that has the first right of, of redemption. So as we look at verses 1 through 4 of Ruth chapter 4, it says, Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. This is where transactions were made. Of course, all the business took place at the gates of the city with all the elders there. And behold, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Come aside, friend. Sit down here. So he came aside and he sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and he said, Sit down here, witnesses. So they sat down, and then he said to the close relative, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. And I thought to inform you, saying, Buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me, that I may know. <clears throat> For there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am next after you. And the close relative said, did we get there yet? Uh, I read all of that, didn't I? Uh, but, and, and so at the very end, the close relative said, I will redeem it. Now you think that's a problem, right? But the next, the next passage, we're not going to go into it, but the next passage, you know, uh, Boaz said, oh, by, by the way, by the way, there's, there's this woman, Ruth. If you're going to get this land, you, you, she, she comes with the terms here. Oh. Well, that changes matters a little bit. You go ahead, Boaz. Yes. <laughs> Boaz had been praying. Boaz was a man that trusted the Lord. He said, yes. 
Boaz is a type of Jesus. So we know how that turns out. Boaz is the great-grandfather of David through Ruth, a Moabite. And then there's the issue of a deed of sale. In Jewish custom, there were two types of a deed of sale. Or two, I should say there were two copies of a deed of sale in Jewish custom. One copy was available for records and reference. As for many of us, you know, the same thing happens. We have, um, oh, you know what I didn't do? I'm going to put this little piece of tape so this thing doesn't fly around. Let me do that. Testing one, two. Okay. So one copy of this deed of sale is for records and reference like we have, you know, in, in our day and time. Except now we have computers and stuff to do that. But the official copy, the official copy of a deed of sale was sealed and could only be opened by the rightful owner as identified in the open copy. So a transaction could not be completed until the rightful owner came forward to break the seals and show that he had the right of ownership. So you see this example now in the Jeremiah passage that I mentioned when he purchased his uncle's land, which is in Jeremiah chapter 32. And I'll just read it to you, uh, verses 10 through 12. And I, and I signed, Jeremiah said, I signed the deed and sealed it, took witnesses, weighed the money on the scales. So I took the purchase deed, both that which was sealed according to the law and custom, and that which was open. And I gave the purchase deed to Baruch, the son of Nariah, the son of uh, Mosea, in the, in the presence of Hanamel, my uncle's son, and in the presence of the witnesses who signed the purchase deed before all the Jews who sat in the court of the prison. So the title deed of the land was written on a scroll, and it was sealed. The destiny now, getting back to Revelation 5, the destiny of the whole earth is now in God's right hand. As John saw in his vision of heaven. The destiny of the whole earth is in his right hand. What does he have in his hand? A scroll with how many seals? Seven seals. The title deed. In Revelation 5 verses 2 through 4. It says, And I saw a strong angel. Proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose the seals? Who's the owner here? Who's worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and to read the scroll or even to look at it. You know, if we are dealing with the title deed of the earth then there is need to remember certain things and certain truths. And here's the first truth that we need to look at. God gave man the earth for a possession, didn't he? God gave man the earth for a possession. Genesis 1 verse 28. Then God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Notice that. Fill the earth and subdue the earth. Have dominion over. That's a very important phrase here. You have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the every living thing that moves on the earth. God gave, the, gave man the earth for a possession. 
But the other truth that we need to understand and, and, and know is, is that man gave dominion over the earth, uh, over the earth to Satan. Man gave dominion over the earth to the enemy. Where was that? Book of Genesis chapter, come on now, three. We've been, we've been in school now for almost three years. Three years now. 2010 we started Genesis. Remember that? Genesis chapter three. Man gave dominion over the earth to Satan. But in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. We forfeited the earth. The dominion. The subduing of it. Things sure changed after the... (laughs) After the fall of man, didn't it? We saw little changes between the time of, of, of the fall and the flood. We saw great changes after the flood. Even after God had, had, had judged the world and man and only saved eight people, things got worse and worse because of sin. But as in the earlier, earlier Old Testament examples that I gave you, the land was lost. And a mighty messenger of God proclaims with a loud voice in Revelation 5 verse 2, he says, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? Who is worthy? The cry reveals that there is no one in the heavens or on the earth or even under the earth who is able to open the scrolls and, or the scroll and loose its seals. There is no angel, there is no man, there is no demon who can know anything of the plans of God until God is pleased to reveal them. They might possess great wisdom. There could be angelic wisdom that is great. There could be human wisdom that is great. Or otherwise. But this avails nothing. Angelic wisdom avails nothing when it comes to God's plans and God's wisdom and God's will. Human wisdom avails nothing when it comes to God's plans and God's purposes. But it's as if it's stated in, in, in Isaiah twenty twenty nine verse 11, where it says, the whole vision has become... To you like the words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one who is literate, saying, Read this, please. And he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. It's something that we saw in the book of Daniel, chapter 12 at the end, where it says, you know, these books are going to be sealed until another time. These things are going to be sealed until God chooses to reveal them. And in essence, there is a complete darkness over the future, but there is only one true and only light for knowing the future. And the key for all prophetic problems is the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. The redemptive work of Jesus Christ. What word is in the word redemptive? Redeem. He is the Redeemer. The Apostle John had yet to learn why no one could ever lo- could even loose the scroll, much less look at it. So he wept. And the implication is that he wept bitterly. That no one came forward. Now listen, we can, we, we can to some degree grasp the unworthiness of man. But we must realize at all times, 
that the worthiness of Christ to meet this problem as He meets all others is essential for us. We must realize at all times the worthiness of Christ. It's how people look at Christ today that makes a very big difference in whether our hearts are going to be passionate for the work of God or not. Is Jesus just a seasonal reminder of things? He's a baby in December. In March or April, He's suffering on the cross for our sins. Or is He in heaven now, waiting to come when the time is fulfilled? And how worthy He is, because He alone is worthy. We attribute too much humanness to Jesus. Yes, He was on this earth. Yes, He had a body. Yes, He was all man, but He also was all God. And He rose. He, I mean, He defeated. He conquered. He prevailed over sin and death for you and me. We must see Him as worthy at all times. Too many Christians have, have tried to humanize Him more than lift Him up as who He really is, which is Lord, Master, Savior, Redeemer. And by the way, He is alone Redeemer. There is no co-redeemer with Jesus. There is no co-mediator with Jesus. There is only Jesus, the Lord, the Redeemer. Looking at John for a moment. Actually, you know, when we look at this picture is... Does it not seem to make our problems just not as critical as we make them? They're, they're all important. I'm not saying our problems aren't important. But the weight that we sometimes put on our problems, you know, and then we look at what, what others are going through for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ and for the sake of the kingdom of God, and then we think of this picture of Jesus being worthy. I mean, whoa. It puts everything in perspective. It puts life in perspective. And if we're not letting life be put into perspective by looking at who Jesus is, we're in a lot of trouble. But one thing that John did when he wept brought up a, a, an interesting question. Have we ever shed tears because defeat comes to God's people through lack of knowledge? Have we ever shed tears because defeat comes to God's people through lack of knowledge? 
John is, is, a, is, a, is, is actually shedding tears because of his lack of knowledge, in essence. But have we shed tears because of the defeat of God's people through the lack of knowledge? Hosea 4.6 is very clearly stating, more, uh, my people, God says, are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Hopelessness overwhelms John. The apostle who's given the opportunity to see heaven. But he realizes the importance of that scroll in the right hand of God. And when that strong voice of a strong and mighty messenger angel says, Who is worthy? But no one comes forward for a moment. He's overwhelmed. Because he understands one thing, which others may not understand, is that if no Redeemer is found to remove the curse from the earth, it meant that God's creation was relegated forever to remain in the hands of Satan. Think about it in those terms. So he weeps. (laughs) Isn't it wonderful? And God changes everything. The more I read the Gospels, especially the chapters dealing with the punishing, the, the afflictions upon Jesus as He's going to the cross, Looking at what they did to him, not just the Roman soldiers, even his own people. The nails, the cross, the blood shed, the lashings, the thorns in the head, the crown, the humiliation. You know, there's this tremendous buildup of anger and hatred and you know oftentimes we say look at what the devil did you know in a sense you know he certainly in some way empowered a lot of that animosity and sentiment you know against Jesus but if we're honest with what we read from Genesis to Revelation Satan did everything he could to keep Jesus off the cross. You know, the Bible says that the demons know a little bit of God's plan and they tremble more than some Christians do today. But there's this tremendous buildup of anger and hatred and then all of a sudden the nails are placed in the hands of, of, of Jesus and then the cross is lifted up and it reminds us that Jesus Himself said, if, if I be lifted up, then I will draw all men unto Me. And that's, what he, that's exactly what He did. And then for those three hours, the suffering, and the pain, the, the blood shed, and, and then the seven statements of Jesus are completed, it is finished. He breathes his last. And it seems like this cacophony of sound and of of 
language and of voices and, and, and just of yelling and screaming, all of a sudden just stops for three days. <laughs> and then on a Sunday morning when the sun starts to rise, There's probably a beautiful song sung by a bird or many birds. The sun peeks over the horizon and all those who were so pained by what had happened that weekend, they try to do something to comfort the body of Jesus even though it's dead only to realize we get to the tomb the stone is rolled away an angel is sitting there kind of supervising matters they, they're scared the women are and he says he's not here check it out And all the songs that had started in minor keys all of a sudden changed into major, beautiful, sweet melodies. When God changes things, <laughs> what a joy. And that's, that happens in heaven. John is just weeping. Because he doesn't understand. Nobody's moving forward here. Who's worthy? <laughs> Everything changes. Because a deliverer steps forward. Look at verse 5. One of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. That, that word prevailed is rich. <laughs> it means to conquer. The Lion of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. The word is, is actually in the Greek, Nikeo, it's the word that's used for some company that sells shoes nowadays. Victorious. He was victorious. He has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. You know how many crazy people will go around saying that they're Jesus? They're stupid. Or possessed. Or just idiots. There's only one, folks. Just read the Word of God. There's only one who died. There's only one who rose again from the dead and prevailed. That's Jesus. And I looked, he says, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain. Having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And then he came and took the scroll right out of the hand of him who sat on the throne. 
John's tears were turned into joy when he was pointed to Jesus Christ. Did, were our tears of sin turned into tears of joy when we saw Jesus for the first time? When we saw Him in, in His Word, when we saw what He did for us, when we saw in, that, in, in the picture of our, in, of our spiritual mind and heart, when we saw that Jesus died for us individually as well as for all who believe in Him. Did our tears turn into joy? Yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm going to have to pass out a booklet to tell you, you know, that it's okay to answer my questions sometimes. Don't be afraid to tell somebody, I, I am just so overjoyed at what Christ has done for me. You don't have to hide that. The world may not like it. I don't care. Once I was blind, but now I see. Once I was lost, I'm found. We can rejoice over these things. Someone has been found that can meet all the qualifications, all the qualifications of the property transaction. That is cause for rejoicing. Now, there are three titles given to our Lord to describe who He is. He is first of all called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, the references to Genesis 49, verses 9 and 10, where Jacob prophetically gave, gave the scepter to Judah and made it the tribe of kings. So we see there in Genesis 49, verses 9 and 10, uh, Judah is a lion's whelp. <laughs> From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. The lion itself signifies dignity and sovereignty and courage and victory. It, it, it uh, signifies ferocity and, uh, and authority and power. But he's also called the root of David. Now that's an interesting thing. Because this isn't merely saying that Jesus came from David's ancient root. You can go back to, uh, we've used it before, Isaiah chapter 11. But it isn't merely saying that Jesus came from David's ancient root. It does mean that, but it, doesn't, it isn't merely saying that, but that he himself is also the root and origin of David. Because we know that Jesus is eternal. And, and, and this is something that we see in, in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew 22, verses 42 to 45, where, where these, these Pharisees were, you know, guys would come around to, you know, challenge Jesus and all of that. And, and, and so they were saying, well, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? That's the question he posed to them. What do you think about the Christ? What do you think about the Messiah, the Mashiach of Israel? Whose son is he? And they said to him, He's the son of David. Oh, he said to them. How then does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? Yet we know that he is called the son of David. Yet at the same time, he's the Lord of David. You see... Being the root of David doesn't mean that he just comes from David 
David came from him. And so when John turns to see the lion, you expect, you know, you know, the lion's ready to roar at you. What lion is that? Oh, we won't talk about that. Courage, courage. When John turned to see the lion, what did he see? He saw a lamb instead. Come on, Lord. Quit, <laughs> quit making it hard for me. I'm having a hard time as it is. I've been crying all day, man. I can't, you, show, you tell me a lion and it's a lamb. Come on. But he saw a lamb. You know that Jesus is called the lamb at least 28 times in the book of Revelation? And the emphasis is quite clear. For when God's wrath is spoken of, it is in fact the wrath of the Lamb. Now you would think, the wrath of the Lamb? <laughs> Me. <laughs> this Lamb's a little different. But that's what it says in our text. This is going to happen in chapter 6. We're getting there. People are going to say, oh, listen, you know, things are going to start taking place and, and judgment's coming. They're going to say, fall on us. Hide, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Even the people on the earth are beginning to realize the judgment is coming to them. For having rejected Jesus Christ. By the way, cleansing will be by the blood of the Lamb. Cleansing will come by the blood of the Lamb. Revelation 7 verse 14. It says, And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So, so, so that's an important thought that we're going to study as we go along into chapter 7. And then the church is also called the bride of the Lamb. The bride of the Lamb. Revelation 19, verse 7. It says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His wife has made herself ready. The wife is, is of course, the church. And then in Revelation 21, verse 9. It says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. So this is a major theme then, which holds great significance and importance, not only in the book of Revelation, but also in all of Scripture, because it represents the person and the work of Jesus Christ as the Redeemer. Do you all remember the question that was asked by Isaac to Abraham in Genesis 22? When Abraham took Isaac in obedience to God's command to sacrifice his son on Mount Moriah, do you remember the question? Where's the lamb? Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and he said, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. Then he said, Look, uh, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the offering? Where's the lamb? I know this isn't in any translation, 
It's almost as if Abraham would say to him, well, son, you're the lamb. But the answer to that question, where's the lamb? Was given by John the Baptist. Who answered that question with a cry which can still be heard throughout the world in John 1.29. He said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, the Lamb of God. And he pointed to Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God. You know, we'll close our study of Revelation 5 tonight here in just a moment, but we're going to close the whole of the study next week. Honestly, this time. (laughs) Next week. With a focus on the description of the Lamb and the worship service that takes place because of who He is, where He is, and what He's come to accomplish. And again, we're still in heaven. We're still going to be there at the scene before the throne. But I, but I want you to consider this. We're going to focus on the description of the Lamb and the worship service that is taking place, verses 7 through 14, or 8 through 14. But nonetheless, that's taking place because of who He is. Now again, what did we say earlier about Jesus? The fact that He's worthy. Now, now that has to mean more than we've ever understood it before. And even if you've already read through chapter 5, read it again and look at what it is that it is saying about Jesus as the Lamb of God, as the Lion of Judah, as the Root and the Offspring of David. Where He is. That's another factor as to how we live our lives in worship and, and in worshipful praise and in worshipful actions. Because of where He is. And then we set our hearts in the right frame of mind and heart when we look at what He's come to accomplish for us. All of this is in the last section of this chapter. But all of these things also enhance our worship. It enhances our devotion. It enhances our actions. It enhances our service. At least they should. And then if there's one thing that it does the most, it lets us know that it's not about us, it's about Him. Leave the us to Him. Because the Bible says that the Lord cares for us. The Lord is compassionate toward us. He hasn't forgotten us. He never will. He said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. We spend most of our time wondering, Lord, where are you for me? (laughs) Son, when you get the idea that it's not about you, but it's about me, then... You're going to get it. 
Okay, Lord. But until then, it's always about us. But Revelation 5 tells us it's not. It's not about us. What did, what did we read at the end of chapter 4? That the 24 elders with their crowns, what did they do? <laughs> Polished them. Yeah, it looked pretty good. No, they cast them at the feet of the Lord. They cast them before the throne of God. Because they said, it's not about us. It's about you. But if we rest in that knowledge, we have nothing to worry about. No matter what we go through, no matter what we struggle with, no matter what afflictions we may deal with in this life, God is on our side. Now the question is, are we on God's side? Are we on Jesus' side? See, that's the question. So I want to close tonight with one thought from Revelation 5, verse 12. We'll close with this particular verse. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Now, stop for just a minute. I know we're going to talk about this next time. But think about the statement, worthy is the Lamb. Who took the scroll from the right hand of God? The Father. The Son. Yeah. The Lamb of God. The Lion of the tribe of Judah. The Root of David. He who was slain. But notice that he is worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Now how many of those things do we ascribe to the Lord on a daily basis? Because he is worthy. Lord, when it, when, it, when it says to ascribe to him or, or, or to, uh, that he is worthy to receive power, it's not like if he, you know, it's not like those power rangers that needed certain things to, you know, if they lost, uh, or what is that Mario game, you know, where you have to eat certain things to get more powered up. That's, don't get that idea. The idea here is that we are ascribing in our worship to the Lord power. In other words, Lord, you're the powerful one, not me. You're the powerful one. You're the one that's worthy because you are all powerful, not us. When we ascribe riches to him, what are we saying? Lord, you're, you're worthy of all things. Because, you know, everything that we have, we're blessed. But we've come to realize they're all yours. So Lord, we offer it all to you. When we ascribe wisdom to him, anybody here smarter than God? No, all the wisdom we have, we have because of Him. Now, notice I didn't say knowledge. We can get a lot of knowledge from books and, and internet and a lot of stupid things there too. But you know, we can get you know, some knowledge, but the only thing that matters is wisdom. And God gives us that. But we ascribe to Him the wisdom because He's the wise one, not us. And strength... 
Well, we can't do what we do unless he gives us strength, and yet we ascribe it to him because it's his strength. Is there anybody here that has offered the Lord some help lately? Here, Lord, I can do it. I don't need your help. You need mine. Honor. Talked about this last week. The honor is not for us. The honor is for Him. At times, you know, He he blesses us and, you know, there's an honor that He's going to give us when we get to heaven. But what matters is that whatever accomplishments accomplishments we might have, we just ascribe it to Him. He's the one to be honored. Glory. Now we've got no glory other than the glory that He's given us. And blessing. Are you blessing Him? See. I would encourage you to, to, to write this down in your Bible somewhere. I know you have it in your Bible, but write it in your Bible. Write it out. And then let that be kind of a guide to your time of personal worship and devotion. Ascribing all of those things. Because he's certainly worthy of them. The Lamb who was slain is worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Shall we pray? Father, thank you.